Hi there, Jonathan. Uh, my name is Jacob. I'm a recently graduated family medicine resident who's going to start practicing in rural central Alberta. I really enjoy your podcast and I think it provides a great practical approach to rural emergency medicine cases. Specifically, I, I recently really enjoyed your pediatric sedation episode and you had mentioned the use of intranasal ketamine in that episode, something that I'm not very familiar with. It sounded like an agent that could be really useful in resource-limited rural emergency settings, specifically for kids. Now, in your episode, you mentioned using intranasal ketamine to calm down an agitated child, which allowed you to get intravenous access to then use propofol for the sedation. My question is, would it be possible to use intranasal ketamine on its own for procedural sedation for simple procedures in the emergency department, as this is something that I think may help reduce your nursing burden and, and make it a little bit easier in the kind of situations that I practice in where you're a solo physician with maybe two nurses in the hospital with you. Thank you very much. Hey gang, you're listening to the RNR Rounds podcast. I'm Jonathan Wallace, and this is episode 72 let's talk about some pediatric sedations. I've got three cases that I think are going to nicely highlight a bunch of different options you can take when dealing with children that require some sort of painful procedure. Before I jump into that, I want to consider some factors that will help you decide what is most appropriate for the child in front of you. And so off the top of my head, I came up with three things to consider. Number one, what is the developmental age of the child in front of you? Younger children may have a lower level of fear. They may be calm and oblivious to what's going on versus when you get up into that six, seven, eight-year-old level where irrational terror can set in and yet they're too young or not disciplined enough to be able to really rationalize through what's going on. The second factor is looking at what level of parental insight or helpfulness or anxiety level that parent or guardian is bringing to the situation because they can be your best ally or your worst adversary when it comes to trying to calm the child and get a simple procedure done quickly. And the third issue that I came up with is asking yourself, what is the analgesia and sedation for? How painful is this procedure or whatever it is that you need to do? How long do you require it for? How still do you need that patient to be? And by that, I think about a mother who brought in a young infant once who had had a circumcision about 10 days before, and the old dried up foreskin was stuck on to the edge of the penis by just this tiniest, tiniest little piece of skin, maybe less than a millimeter wide. And all we had to do is just a quick snip. And really the major issue was the parental anxiety. As compared to, say, a six-year-old who has broken her arm and is in absolute distress and doesn't want anyone to come near her. Okay, so with that introduction, let's get into three separate cases that I think will walk us through various different options we can take when it comes to children. So case number one, it's Hulk Hogan at age six, who's coming into emergency with a three centimeter laceration on his foot. And he is kicking and screaming and he is too strong and too large for us to safely suppress. His parent is not particularly helpful. He weighs about 25 kilograms. What are we gonna do? Well, this is a great job for intranasal ketamine. Now, when it comes to dosing, I like using something in the five to nine milligram per kilogram range, depending on how much adrenaline is circulating through the child's body. And in this case, he is a 10 out of 10 adrenaline. 
Now, at the same time, the highest volume you want to put in someone's nose for intranasal medication is ideally one milliliter per nair, so as not to make them feel like they're drowning. The highest concentration that I've seen in rural hospitals for ketamine is 50 milligrams per milliliter. So that works out to 100 milligrams if you put one milliliter in each nair, which is not nearly enough for this 25 kilogram fellow. That's only four milligrams per kilogram. And as I say, my starting dose range is five to nine milligrams per kilogram. So in this case, redosing is going to be a necessary step. Alternatively, it's tempting to give the drug IM for older children. And what's nicer, squirting a little fluid up the nose multiple times or a single injection? I don't really know, and it's going to depend a lot on the situation and the patient. But in this particular child, six years old, Hulk Hogan, fighting for all he's worth, I don't think it's safe to bring a needle anywhere near him. So that's why we opted for the multiple dosing of intranasal ketamine. So... What I ended up doing is starting by giving him six milligrams per kilogram. That's 150 milligrams for him. And that worked out to 1.5 milliliters per nair. So I've already bent the rules that I just told you about, but he's a larger child and he tolerated it just fine. 1.5 milliliters was not nearly enough to cause him any significant distress. Now, when I give intranasal drug, no matter what it is, typically it's ketamine for me, I use that little white funnel shaped atomizer, I think it's called. And if your emergency department doesn't have one, I highly recommend that you go and order a bunch because I'm sure they're very cheap in the grand scheme of things. And they make the distribution of medication much more tolerable because it's really coming out in a fine mist as opposed to one and a half milliliters dripping in. So use the atomizer. I have this little gauze handy so that I can cover the nair just to catch any drips or splutters that come out. Just keeps things a little bit cleaner. Not that that's usually a common problem. And you have to think too, what is the child's reaction going to be? Typically, they're not that cooperative in the first place. And so it's unrealistic to think that they're just going to lay still while you shoot some fluid into their nose. So here's some more tips. So what I typically do is I explain to the child and the parent what is going to happen. That is, we're going to squirt a little medicine into the nose. And sure, that might set some children off and they're going to tell me, no, 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 you're not going to do that, blah, blah, blah. And that's okay. We just do it anyway. But I still give them the benefit of the doubt and explain to them what's going to happen so that at least they know that I'm not going to lie to them or try and trick them because I think that's infinitely more harmful. Now, the child is going to lay supine for me. And if they're not willing to cooperate and help me, then we will use our staff to help them lay back, even if they're fighting a little bit. And because it's very quick to squirt medicine into the nose, it takes a fraction of a second. We don't need them to still for very long. Once that medicine goes in, they can cough and splutter. They can sit up. That's totally fine. But the dose is in. Now, my next tip is to use a three milliliter syringe for this dose. Even though you're only putting in one milliliter solution, use a three milliliter, not a one milliliter syringe. And if you're not clear as to why, just take a look at those two devices. Draw one milliliter of fluid up into each one, and you're gonna see that one milliliter syringe barrel is sticking back probably close to 10 centimeters into your hand, whereas the three milliliter syringe barrel is only coming back about one centimeter. And so it all translates into stability. And when you have a child that's thrashing and trying to push things around, and you're trying to line up this syringe in their nose and get the plunger in, it's so much easier to use that three milliliter syringe and get that in in a quarter of a second and be done, rather than miss half the dose and dribble it over their face. Trust me, I've tested it, go with the three mil syringe. And then my final tip is that if you're doing the other nair, just give the child 30 seconds or 60 seconds to recover and then explain you're going to do the other side. And typically they're much more cooperative with that second dose because they now realize that it's not the end of the world. 
So back to my case, I gave this fellow six milligrams per kilogram in a total of three milliliters divided between the two sides. And then I waited. 15 minutes later, he's now no longer fighting, but he's still sobbing and crying about wanting to go home and not wanting to be here and not cooperating in the slightest. So at that point, we redose him with another three milligrams per kilogram. That is for his weight, 75 milligrams. We squirt that in, divide it between the two sides. And 15 minutes after that, he's now calm. He's not upset and he's not screaming, but he's not willing to cooperate with us either. So at this point, we could give more medication or we could just say, you know what, let's get this done. Nine milligrams per kilogram intranasal of ketamine. I really don't think he's going to remember anything. I think the amnesia component is high enough that if we hold him down for two minutes and get this thing done, it's going to be much quicker and easier than giving more medications and potentially asking for side effects. So at that point, we used five adults to secure this patient. Mum takes the head, there's one adult for each limb, and then the one person can suture up that foot. Lidocaine goes in, two stitches, there's a bunch of screaming. He's not feeling a darn thing as soon as that lidocaine goes in and we're done. So there's case one. Summary, we've got the little Hulk Hogan. He's a strong enough kid. He's too immature to be able to cooperate. He's too strong to safely overpower or think about trying to start an IV in. And so intranasal is the way to go. Single agent, it worked beautifully. Okay, case two is a 21 month old I had who had a two centimeter laceration in his forehead. Now this poor young fellow is an ICU survivor. He's only 21 months old, but he was on ECMO. And as a result of being on ECMO for, I think it was several weeks, three weeks or something, he had a stroke. And this was all due to a haemophilus influenza B infection that he had when he was younger. He's been left with some motor deficits in one of his legs, but otherwise he's a fairly healthy and normally functioning young 21 month old fellow. He also comes in with a very patient and understanding mother and auntie, which is helpful as well. Now he is screaming murder and you can understand why after being in ICU for three weeks when you're under a year old and ending up with a stroke and whatnot. I mean, I can only imagine how terrifying this must be, but we need to get this laceration sutured up. And happily in this instance of Fort St. Nowhere, we had confident nurses who were able to get that IV in. Now that's wonderful because once you have an IV, now you have total control. And the nice thing about him is although he's too young and too immature to be able to cooperate, he's young enough that you can overpower him in that mom can give him a hug, you can put one arm around behind her back and the two nurses can go to town and overpower that little arm and get that IV in. Now, is this psychologically the best thing for him versus squirting fluid up the nose? I don't know what the right answer is because it's no fun getting fluid up your nose either. And let's face it, if you have someone who knows what they're doing and can pop that IV in on the first try in a couple of seconds, there's really no pain to it either. So I don't know what the right answer is. But I think in a case like this where the child is too young to be able to give us any meaningful input, parental preference is the key. So the IV's in, we don't need any intranasal medications in this case. This young fellow weighs only 12.5 kilograms. Now my starting dose of ketamine when I'm giving it IV for anybody, correction, is 0.3 milligrams per kilogram. But because of his young age, I increased it to 0.4. So at a 12.5 kilogram child, that works it to five milligrams of ketamine. And that's what I gave. The child is being held in mom's arms. He is just screaming his head off. He's got this beautiful little IV and saline lock sitting there. I can screw into that. He really doesn't like the look of what I'm doing, but he doesn't feel a thing as I push that ketamine. 
And for safety purposes, we also have mom sitting on the stretcher. And that's a really good thing because within 20 seconds of that IV push, he's now developing some ataxia and fighting as best he can, but now in a very uncoordinated fashion and in somewhat a delirious fashion as well. And this actually caught mum by surprise, both in the reaction and the speed of the timing. And so we needed to grab onto this child and just help stabilize him and get him down to the bed softly, preventing any accidental fall. And that's why it was so key to have mum holding him while she's sitting on the stretcher. So we lay him onto the bed. We try and get the O2 and the SpO2 monitor on, and he is absolutely fighting us as if it's his last dying breath. So at this point, you have to ask yourself, why are you traumatizing a child with pre-procedural vital signs equipment and for what benefit? We're really not expecting him to go apneic or have any hypotensive issues. So why bother with this? Why don't we just let him be, let the sedation take effect. And as he begins to drift off and doesn't care, then slip it on. And so there's a pro tip to think about as well. So after 60 seconds post-ketamine, he's in a full-on rage, just fighting for everything he's worth. Not because of the ketamine, but because of the adrenaline that's coursing through him, presumably because of this horrible experience with hospitals and medical staff that he's had at such a young age. So this is not pleasant to watch. It's certainly not going to calm down very quickly with that small dose of ketamine I gave him, so it's time for him to go to sleep. And this is where the IV propofol comes along. Now, normally, I would say 0.4 milligrams per kilogram IV is the starting dose for the propofol component of a ketamine propofol sedation. And in this 12.5 kilogram kid, that would work out to five milligrams or one half of a milliliter of propofol. Now in him, I can tell you based on past experience that this is going to be far too little. And I say that because number one, he's very young. He's under two years old and he's gonna need a lot more propofol just because of his age. And number two, he's fighting everything like he's a little badger on speed. So for those reasons, I gave him double. I gave him 10 milligrams, which is 0.8 milligrams per kilogram as his loading dose. And that wasn't nearly enough. So after 30 seconds, I gave him another 10 milligrams. And then he was beginning to chill a little bit. And so I went down down to a five milligram bolus and that put him out. So he received in total two milligrams per kilogram of propofol. He got 25 milligrams IV for a little 21 month old who weighs only 12.5 kilograms. And that was the correct dose for him. Now, would I have known that beforehand? Could I have predicted that? No, but because this is a titration, anyone can watch the signs and give little top ups every 30 seconds and bring the patient in for a gentle landing. It's not that difficult. So we have him out, the lidocaine goes in, he gets a single stitch and we're done in about 45 seconds, no problem. The beauty of IV medication is it gives you total control and it's so fast and it's so titratable, but you have to get that IV in in order to be able to use it, of course. And we could do that in this case because the patient is young enough and small enough that we're able to hold his arm and slip that IV in. That would not have worked in our first case with the six-year-old Hulk Hogan. Otherwise, if this child was fighting too much, we would have had to resort to intranasal ketamine, which would have slowed things down, but that's okay. And then we could have decided at that point, either we start the IV and give the propofol, or we just proceed with the intranasal only. Okay, so hopefully that's a nice little contrast between those first two cases. The third and final case I wanna tell you about is a seven-year-old who comes into emergency with this giant fishing lure embedded in his gastrocnemius. And he was, as you can imagine, anxious like crazy because let's face it, I would probably be anxious like crazy if I had a giant fish hook stuck in the back of my leg. But for him, he had this amazingly insightful and helpful mother. And that makes all the difference. 
Now it turns out what else really helps is video games or YouTube videos on a phone. In fact, there's an article from Pediatric Anesthesia in 2014, which is entitled Tablet-Based Interactive Distraction. And they actually have an acronym for that. They call it TBID. Tablet-Based Interactive Distraction versus Midazolam to Minimize Perioperative Anxiety in Pediatric Patients. And that article concludes that for preoperative anxiety, screen time plus parental presence was approximately equivalent to midazolam 0.5 milligrams per kilogram PO. And of course, it comes without the risk of apnea or hypotension. So that's pretty amazing. When you have a parent who's in your corner, who understands the bigger picture and is a calming force helping to regulate the child, and if you add to that some sort of interactive screen or even just a really colorful Paw Patrol-esque type show, I think you're going to find that that makes a big difference. Is it going to be enough? Not necessarily, it really depends on the situation, but it's going to help and it may very well translate to reduced doses of medication, which is wonderful. So make sure that you try and capitalize on that, but accept that there are going to be limits as to what you can accomplish with that. So we were able to talk this child over the course of about five, 10 minutes into just getting lidocaine only at the fishing hook. And it was actually quite simple. I explained to him, we inject beside the fishing hook. It's gonna sting for 10 seconds. We're all going to count to 10. It's gonna be a proper 10 seconds. We're not gonna do the one, two, three, four, five thing, which everyone does, even the 60 year olds that are anxious about needles. And after that was in, there was gonna be no pain and life was going to be good. And mom amazingly got him to do this. We got the lidocaine in and of course he was completely pain free. And then the shock of course, that he couldn't feel the fish hook anymore. So I brought out the wire cutters to get the fish hook out. And he of course was super anxious about this, but mom just distracted him. And I did the old trick of pushing the fish hook right through the skin so that the barb and pointed end was sticking out can snip that off and then of course the remaining J hook without an actual hook on the end, without the barb on the end, was able to pop right through and out. And so no problem whatsoever. And that was mostly due to the fact that we had a super cooperative supportive mom who was able to help her son rationalize. Plus the additional distraction with screens and of course the rapid action of lidocaine. All right, so there we are, three different cases, three different outcomes to take care of relatively fast, simple procedures. I hope that helps answer some of your questions, Jacob. And specifically you asked, can you use intranasal ketamine as a solo agent? It is absolutely appropriate to use it as a solo agent under the right circumstances. You don't always need to start an IV and start that second agent. But I will temper that by saying that if you're using intranasal ketamine, even as a solo agent, it's probably going to be just as nursing intensive as the ketamine plus propofol in most rural departments. I just don't believe that's going to be a shortcut in terms of the nursing resources. So a little caveat there. And one little post-production comment I'd like to add in here. When you are exceeding doses of say nine milligrams per kilogram intranasal of ketamine, I think you would potentially be getting into territory where you could begin to worry about dissociation. So if you are going beyond that nine milligrams per kilogram of ketamine intranasal or beyond say 0.4 or 0.5 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine IV, I think you really want to be thinking about adding that second agent, whether it's intranasal or ideally IV at that point, in order to smooth out the ride as the patient is coming down from that ketamine bolus.
Second item I wanna mention here as we summarize, intranasal ketamine is just one option. Pediatric emergency departments also recommend intranasal midazolam and or intranasal fentanyl. For the same reasons as I lay out in episode three, I don't like those medications as first line sedation agents, mainly because there is a much higher probability that you're going to be managing apnea or hypotension with those agents, especially if you use them together. That said, Ketamine causes salivation, and that's why you want to have suction nearby as you would with any sedation, but especially so when you're using ketamine. It's not that everybody salivates, but probably about a third of the time, there's a little bit of salivation and it's nice to be on top of that early. Very, very rarely, ketamine can cause a laryngospasm, probably because of that salivation irritating the vocal cords. But it's extremely rare, and ultimately, if you get laryngospasm, no matter the cause, it's a case of giving an aggressive jaw thrust and positive pressure ventilation with your bag valve mask, because sooner or later, that laryngospasm is going to break. And when it does, you wanna just bring that patient's oxygen level back up, and they should be just fine. Now, in my experience, I have never had a laryngospasm from intranasal ketamine or IV ketamine sedation doses other than in an endoscopy suite where we also happen to be shoving cameras past the glottis and using much larger doses of drugs. But if you want to use intranasal midazolam or fentanyl, they are quite safe and reasonable choices. It's just not my first pick. And the final point I want to summarize is that intranasal ketamine dosing, the range that I use that is, is five to nine milligrams per kilogram based on how anxious the child and the parents are. I divide the doses between the nares using a three mil syringe for plunger stability. And I plan to redose after 10 or ideally 15 minutes based on the limitation of no more than one or one and a half mils of fluid per nair per top up. Lastly, some final comments about procedural sedation. Remember your target is not a Sleeping Beauty-esque child laying there peacefully on the bed and not moving no matter the stimulus. Rather, you could argue that sufficient amnesia and reduction of pain is more than sufficient for your needs for all of these procedures that we're doing, especially if it means avoiding a sedation that is so heavy that you're going to be required to give bag mask ventilation or IV fluid boluses. So don't be afraid to give a little something and then test the degree of reaction to stimulus and then redose if necessary. Sedations need to be titrations. And of course, don't take more time than you need to to just fuss over the procedure. Reduce fractures in the minimum amount of time and get on with the casting or put in the minimum number of stitches rather than fussing around trying to remember how to do a running locking horizontal mattress emplasty. I mean, take the amount of time you need to get the job done right, but prioritize speed over other unnecessary fussing around. Okay, Jacob, I hope that helps and keep the questions and requests coming, gang. Bye for now. The r Rounds podcast is free open access medical education. This episode was hosted by Dr. Jonathan Wallace. Show notes by Heather Lean. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for more clinical pearls. Visit podcast.rnrrounds.ca.